Let's pray. Father, thank you beyond words for your word. Lord, you have stooped down. You have condescended, literally, to you've come down to be with us through the pages of Holy Scripture. We thank you, Father, that the Bible is is you speaking to us. And our desire right now, Lord, is to not just to understand, but to at least understand, and then to be set ablaze with the vision that we see here in Luke chapter 3. We thank you that as the Gospel of John says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. And it is our great joy this morning to learn from him as we seek to be more effective in our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. This time it's my privilege to invite you to open a Bible to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Gospel of Luke, Gospel according to Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And if you'd like to use one of the Red Bibles in front of you, the text is on page 858 in the Red Bibles, 858. Well, beginning today and over the next several weeks, our church has the rare opportunity to sit at the feet of Luke, the beloved physician, as he tells us the story of one of the most unforgettable people in the Bible, and that person is John the Baptist. Almost nothing about John is normal. I trust you heard that in the introductory scripture that was just read for us. John the Baptist was conceived to parents who looked like a, a far better fit for the geriatric ward than for the pediatric ward, right? Uh, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. If you like, John was born again even before he was born. John the Baptist, it seems, grew up under his parents' care, but it's clear that he eventually left home and went to live in the desert. The Bible calls it the wilderness, but it's a desert all the same. John was an ascetic, which means he was a man who lived a life of extreme self-denial. His diet, as we read, consisted of locusts and wild honey. See in uh, the Gospel of Mark also, he drank no alcohol, or Luke 1 says that. He was an abstainer of alcohol. John's wardrobe uh, was as bizarre as his diet. He wore a garment of, of camel's hair and, and a leather belt. Almost nothing about this individual is normal. And while John the Baptist may not have been normal, don't hear me say not powerful. There was no one more powerful. Jesus himself said in, in Luke seven twenty eight, I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. We are in the presence of greatness this morning as we study John. And what I want to argue made him so great was John's unceasing and unrelenting witness, his verbal witness to the person of Jesus Christ. That's what made John great. In the gospel of the apostle John, 
Chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, we read, There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Jesus himself referred to John as a burning and shining lamp. That's John chapter 5, verse 35. John was a burning and shining lamp for Jesus. Don't you want to be that way? I hope so. I mean, how many of you are currently satisfied with your current level of evangelistic intensity? I hope I don't see any hands go up. I'm not satisfied with mine. How many of you could probably stand to take the next few weeks and sit with me at the feet of John the Baptist, this man who was a burning and shining lamp? Me too. Because here's the thing, not to put too fine a point on it, but the entire 2020 vision hangs on getting this right. The entire vision. I'd bet my hands on it. Because until or unless Mount Evangelical Free Church becomes a soul-winning congregation, like John the Baptist was a soul-winning man, I think we can kiss the vision goodbye. I hope you have a list of five. I hope you have a list of five people at least that you pray for routinely, regularly, perhaps daily, people who are far from Christ, praying that God would give you opportunities to demonstrate the love of Jesus in practical ways, and then especially praying for open doors that God would give you the chance to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Having a list of five is half the battle, but the rest of the action, the rest of the mission doesn't surge forward without passion, without hunger, without a desire, a heartfelt desire to see people saved. And so the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer unto God for them is that they may be saved. How's your desire this morning for unsaved people? Well, if your evangelistic passion for your list of five has become too wet to burn, these truths are a flamethrower. I learned that phrase from Randy Alcorn as he was recommending a a particular book he liked. I I like this phrase, so I'm going to use it. If your evangelistic passion for your list of five has become too wet to burn, these truths, these three truths are a flamethrower. Let's begin by reading our text from beginning to end, and then we'll dive into three flame-throwing truths from Luke's gospel for us from the story of John the Baptist. So Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eritrea and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Here's the first point today. The soul-winning ministry 
of John the Baptist reminds us that the message of the gospel actually unfolded in space-time history. The soul-winning ministry of John the Baptist reminds us that the message of the gospel actually unfolded in space-time history. Now, it might be tempting to just breeze past the first verse and a half this morning, stampeding right for verses 2 and 3, but we would miss something significant that Luke wants to tell us if we do that. So we are wise to pause here for a moment and consider just why it is that Luke labors so carefully on the front end of chapter 3 as he dives into the meat and potatoes of the rest of the chapter. Listen to this historical precision, beginning in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eritrea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. What's going on here? What's What's he aiming at? Why so many names? What's Luke driving at with seven layers of leadership before he launches into chapter 3? Perhaps we're wise at this point to recall the very purpose of Luke's gospel. You remember the reason that Paul told, or Luke told Theophilus he's writing his gospel? Luke chapter 1 verse 4, that you may have, anybody remember? Certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Certainty. Confidence, conviction, steadiness, rock-solid assurance about all that Jesus did and taught. So how could this list of ancient civic and religious leaders point us toward certainty about Jesus? We could answer the question with another question from the perspective of Theophilus. How could this list not provide assurance and certainty about the story of Jesus? There's seven names. Five of them are secular, the first five. The last two are Jewish priests. All of them, every one of them, are referenced outside the New Testament in secular resources of the day. All of them living in the very regions that Luke describes as the events themselves unfolded, roughly A.D. 29. This is what we call historical documentation. Luke is not writing a fairy tale here. In the words of the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, granted, Luke was not an eyewitness, but he sure interviewed them. He spent deliberate time with them. This man did his homework before he put his pen to his parchment. Uh, The opening four verses in Luke's gospel are all one sentence, and if they are anything, they are the work of a careful historian. So Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been accomplished among us. That's why Luke opens chapter 3 with these seven ancient names. Now, 
granted, the names Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, Annas, and Caiaphas probably mean very little to the people on your list of five. I recognize that. But they meant everything to Theophilus. They provided historical documentation for everything that was going to follow. Over a hundred years ago, uh, New Testament scholar J. Gresham Machen wrote this. The student of the New Testament should be primarily a historian. The center and core of all the Bible is history. Everything that the Bible contains is fitted into a historical framework, and it leads up to a historic climax. The Bible is primarily a record of events. The Bible contains a record of something that happened Something that puts a new face upon life. I love that phrase. The Bible contains a record of something that happened. Unlike the Book of Mormon. Unlike the religion of Ekinkar, celebrated not too far from here in Chanhassen. Your friends and neighbors on your list of five can no more ignore the historical foundations of the New Testament than they can the historical facts of their own lives or the historical foundations of our own nation. The Apostle Paul so wonderfully said in his defense before King Agrippa in Acts 26, 25 and 26, I am not out of my mind. I am speaking true and rational words, for I know the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, and I am persuaded that none of this has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And this, by the way, is the whole life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. This has not been done in a corner. You could fly those last eight words in a banner over the entire Old and New Testament as it climaxes in Jesus. This has not been done in a corner. It hasn't. And it ought to lead you tremendous boldness and fearlessness and openness and candor and frankness in talking with others about Jesus. Friends, the soul-winning ministry of John the Baptist reminds us that the message of the gospel actually unfolded in space-time history. And I don't think, I was talking with my sister the other day on the phone about this, I don't think there's a better time in space-time history for the gospel. Given the divisiveness in our nation, given the chaos of the current world order, the gospel is good news. Second point today. The soul-winning ministry of John the Baptist reminds us that the message of the gospel actually aims to change people's lives, not just eternities. The soul-winning ministry of John the Baptist reminds us that the message of the gospel actually aims to change people's lives, not just eternities. So we'll pick up our text in the second half of Luke chapter 2, verse 2, where we read that the Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region and around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, whether you realize it or not, whether you believe it or not, if you have been praying for people on your list of five in the ways that we recommend, this is what the people on your list are desperate for. And the reason I know that is because the very first prayer request on the reverse side of your list of five, and by the way, if you don't have a list of five, you don't know what I'm talking about, we've got a stack of them in Fellowship Hall. Grab one on the information table as you leave. But on the reverse side of our list of five, the very first prayer request we have is that we would pray specifically that the Holy Spirit would convict people of sin. 
That's the first thing we're praying that God would do in their lives. That God, the Holy Spirit, would convict them of sin. John chapter 16, verse 8. Jesus says it is one of the central ministries of the Holy Spirit in this age to convict the world concerning sin. And if you've been praying for people on your list of five regularly, it would not be surprising to me to learn that some of them, maybe many of them, are ripe for harvest. Right at the edge of conversion. I mean, if you're a believer who remembers your own conversion and the conviction that you were under before you came to faith in Christ, or just if you simply know the experience as a Christian of being convicted by your guilt before a holy God, there is nothing sweeter on the whole planet than what Luke is describing here in verses 2 and 3. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The word repentance here in verse 3 is one that sees a lot of emphasis in Luke's gospel and frankly throughout the Bible. In old, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for repentance literally means to turn. That's all the word means, to turn. So we hear it in one of the most well-known promises to God's ancient covenant people in Second Chronicles 7.14 where God says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn... There's our word, turn, repent from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So repentance involves a turning, a turning away from sin. The, the Hebrew word is the word shuv. It's a, it's a wonderful word. My previous pastor in our last church 15 years ago, Lee Eklov, used to say, God gives it, you a shuv in the right direction, away from sin. Repentance includes within it a sense of turning away from sin. Now, as this word is used in the New Testament and, and frequently in Luke's gospel, as I mentioned, it's a compound Greek word, and that word means a change of mind. Not just turning away from sin, but, but a, an internal change of mind as to how you're thinking about your sin in the life that you're leading. And so Jesus says in Luke 5, 31 to 32, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to Repentance. That's the word, repentance. Now, granted, if you're looking to bring the medicine of the gospel to someone who's just not convinced that they are very ill spiritually, it, it doesn't seem like probably this is repentance is an idea that they're going to be drawn to. I mean, Jesus said it. Like, what's a doctor to do around such a healthy person, right? On the other hand, if you're praying for people on your list of five, one thing I know about them is that many of them are realizing that they are terminal and that they do need repentance. They know that their direction in life is killing them and they're looking for answers. And in this case, repentance is music to a sinner's ears. Especially as repentance is bound up with what Luke 3 refers to as the forgiveness of sins. Here Luke says that the preaching of John the Baptist isn't just about turning from sin, but about forgiveness of sin. Now without a doubt, John does not have within himself this particular divine authority, the authority of God to forgive sin. As we'll see in two weeks, John is crystal clear in verse 16. He who is mightier than I is coming. Only Jesus has the power to forgive sin. 
That's why Jesus says in Luke's version of the Great Commission, which happens in Luke 24, 46 to 47, Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name throughout all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. The Christ alone has the authority to forgive sin. And you know that there is nothing sweeter, if you've been on the receiving end of this, for a person who is under conviction of sin to experience forgiveness of sin. Nothing sweeter. I was just thinking about it the other day too. I, um, when I sin routinely against my family and I say, well, I recognize that I've sinned, I'm not looking for them to say, it's okay. I'm looking for something much deeper. I'm asking do you release me from this? Will you not dwell on this anymore? Will you not seek to hold this against me? Will you make sure that this is not an obstacle between me and you anymore? That's what forgiveness is. And that's what God offers through Jesus. John knows that. There's nothing sweeter than true forgiveness. Not just it's okay. That's not what God's saying. It's far deeper than that. In the words of Zechariah's prophecy, about his son in Luke 1.77. He came to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now here in chapter 3, verse 3, John, uh, Luke also says that John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, John's baptism is just preparatory. Um, we're going to learn in verse 16, John says, I baptize you with water. But Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In fact, the baptism of John was nothing apart from the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We learn that in Acts chapter 19. We'll unfold that in the days ahead. In fact, according to Acts 19, you could be baptized by John and still know nothing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, of conversion. John's baptism was about repentance. It was about pointing people toward Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that are ultimately found in him. And here's why this matters for people on your list of five. So much of the time, unbelieving people draw the conclusion about the Christian message that it is a message fixated purely on getting people to heaven. That's the sum total of the Christian message. And here's the thing. The gospel is most certainly about getting us to heaven when the time comes. Amen to that. But there's no question that if that's all our understanding of the gospel entails, we are coming far, far short of what Jesus came to do in this world. The gospel is first a message that saves you from the penalty of sin. Next, the gospel is a message that saves you increasingly from the power of sin. And one day, the gospel is a message that will save you entirely from the presence of sin. That's what the gospel and the grace of the gospel is all about. And that's what your folks on your list of five need to know. The comprehensive rescue of the gospel. Not just rescue in heaven one day, but increasing power and change in this life now, turning from sin and becoming more like Jesus in this life. 
So the soul-winning ministry of John the Baptist reminds us that the message of the gospel actually aims to change people's lives, not just eternities. And this is a This is uh, absolutely something for us to be thinking about. Paul says in Romans 2 to the believers in Rome, he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And I think the idea there being that Gentiles see in the church very little life change, very little, uh, anything that looks different than their lives. But rather, we ought to seek to live lives that Jesus outlined in the Sermon on the Mount where they would see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. The soul-winning ministry of John the Baptist reminds us that the message of the gospel actually aims to change people's lives, not just eternities. Final point today. The soul-winning ministry of John the Baptist reminds us that the message of the gospel actually contains past and future fulfillments of ancient biblical prophecy. The soul-winning ministry of John the Baptist actually contains past and future fulfillments of ancient biblical prophecy. Now Luke chapter 3 verses 4 to 6 contains a quotation from the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Specifically, it's Isaiah 40 verses 3 to 5. And Luke's purpose for including the quotation is to say that John is the fulfillment of of what Isaiah is describing some 800 years prior to John's life and ministry. So we'll read it and we'll make some concluding applications. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. Now, as I said, nearly 800 years separate the initial promise in Isaiah chapter 40 and the eventual fulfillment that happened in the first century with John here in Luke chapter 3. That alone is a mind-blowing truth for anyone on your list of five to consider, that the Bible is pulsing with fulfilled prophecy. Again, like the civic and religious leaders referenced in verses 1 and 2, John the Baptist is a man whose identity was entirely known by the secular world. A Jewish historian, not a Christian, Josephus, mentions John in quite some detail describing the life and ministry of John the Baptist. His life is documented outside the New Testament. His, matter is, is all, is his life is all a matter of the historical record of the day. And that means that Luke, along with the other gospel writers, is claiming that this is a fulfillment of ancient biblical prophecy. Now, the form of the prophecy in the first century uh, fits a common ancient Near Eastern image of making way for royalty to enter into a particular geography. Uh, New Testament scholar Daryl Bach puts it this way. This is a standard metaphor about clearing the way for an entry of a king or a god, lowercase g. A a metaphor for preparing a road for a sovereign's entry. You see that here in the language, don't you? John's message sounds like an old town crier, doesn't he? Hear ye, hear ye. A message from the king. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. The rough places level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He sounds like a town crier on behalf of the king. And he is. 
And in his life, he fulfilled this prophecy. John is the one that Isaiah wrote about. Now, what's interesting about verses 4 to 6, each one of these phrases, is that he's not describing a literal roadway for the Messiah to enter into the city of David in Jerusalem. Rather, he is describing a spiritual roadway for Jesus to enter into the human heart. Again, the work of uh, Daryl Bach here is really helpful. He writes this, The highway that clears the way for God's coming is a purified heart. Hmm. So every valley shall be filled, speaking of the eradication of depression and despair. Every mountain and hill shall be made low, speaking of the humbling of the proud. The crooked shall become straight, that's falsehood becoming honesty. The rough places becoming level ways. That's a reference to, the, to the, the entire renovation of the human heart. This is what repentance looks like. That's why the gospel changes people's lives, not just eternities. The Jewish people of John's day peered into Isaiah's messianic prophecies and they expected a king, a worldly political ruler with the power to overthrow the Roman occupation, military might, to set up his own counter-kingdom. And of course, with Jesus of Nazareth, that is what is prophesied about him in the Old Testament, but that is not how he came in the first century. What pious readers of Isaiah's prophecy got right was that the Messiah was their king. What they missed was that marking his way on the path to the crown is a cross. Jesus' suffering and crucifixion were the means of securing forgiveness and repentance that we looked at in verse 3. And one day, Jesus' glorious appearing will signal the ushering in of his everlasting kingdom. So we need to be as careful as the first century Jews here were. For example, many Jews of Jesus' day disbelieved or they entirely overlooked the prophecies about Jesus as a suffering king on a cross. So today, many Christians in our day disbelieve and they look over the clear prophetic statement about Jesus Christ and his crown and his coming kingdom. When we do that, we not only rob ourselves of the joy of our blessed hope, but we also cut our evangelistic message in half. For one day, every valley shall be filled. This is future. Every mountain shall be made low. Crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become plain. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now this last hope is is not a statement about universalism, of course, but rather a universal hope that all people can have this Savior if they would turn from their sins and find forgiveness in Him. As Romans 1.16 says, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And so to everyone here today, if you know Jesus, the great power that's yours in evangelism is really just a matter of seeing and savoring all that God is for you in Christ and letting others see that in your life, displayed in your life as you do. All that Jesus accomplished on the cross, all that he stands to inherit when he comes for his crown, The soul-winning ministry of John the Baptist reminds us that the message of the gospel actually contains past and future fulfillments of ancient biblical prophecies.
Well, let's sum up. If your evangelistic passion for your list of five has become too wet to burn, these truths are a flamethrower. The soul-winning ministry of John the Baptist reminds us that the message of the gospel first actually unfolded in space-time history. Second, the message of the gospel actually aims to change people's lives, not just eternities. And finally, the message of the gospel contains past and future fulfillments of ancient biblical prophecy. Friends, there is no one like Jesus. And if the people on your list of five express little to no interest in him, it's because they do not know him. They don't know him. And the mission of John the Baptist is one of awakening. It's one to shake us awake to rattle us out of our complacency so that we may see Jesus for who he truly is. Savior, Lord, Master, Treasure, Delight, Friend, Helper. Worthy of all of our worship and worthy of building all of our lives around. John's ministry is one that he would decrease so that Jesus is on the increase. And John's method is to emerge out of the the desert shouting his voice to shreds over the one who is greater than him. The one whose sandal strap he is not worthy to untie. So how's your spiritual temperature this morning? Is it anything like John's? Over these next several weeks, our aim as a church will be to follow this man as closely as we can, this man and his preaching, praying all the while that for the sake of our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus, And for the sake of our 2020 vision, that God grants us not just some of John's spirit, but as Elisha prayed about Elijah, that we would have a double portion of John's spirit in this church. Because Jesus said, among all born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. You know what the rest of that phrase says? But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. So if your evangelistic passion for your list of five has become too wet to burn, the life and ministry of John the Baptist is an absolute flamethrower. And next week, we'll take a step closer to this human bonfire as we press further into John's message of repentance and what it means for us as we seek to engage people on our list of five. Right now, let's pause and pray. Father, we thank you for John. On one level, we confess with Jesus, there's just no one greater than John. His, his passion to see people turn from their sins and go public with their allegiance to Jesus is without parallel. And yet, we also believe and embrace what our Savior says, that while there's no one greater than John, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven, who is on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, who is living with the infilling of the Spirit as we can as Christians. We are greater still. And so, Father, I I pray that you'd help us to make progress this week with those in our list of five. Lord, may we live lives of, of just winsome invitation everywhere we go. May we be lavish with the gospel of the grace of Jesus, Lord. May we invite people into our lives, into our home, into our groups, into our Wednesday evening meal this Wednesday. Come with somebody on our arm to this place and give them a good meal. Lord, may we be quick to give an invitation to Sunday morning. And may we be aware that it's in the 
exhibition of the body of Christ here. As people see this church at work, that people really do see Jesus for who he is. Lord, may we do evangelism together, linking arms together, praying for one another, praying for people on our list of five. And may we see in the days ahead a great harvest. Give us the model of John the Baptist so that we may, like Jesus, see him increase and we decrease. In Jesus' name, amen.